Hi, I'm Sasheen. And I'm Dave. We're married, and this is our love letter to the sport that gave us everything, rugby. Rugby has always been a huge part of our lives. It has been there since day one. It is the reason we met, and it has been with us ever since. This is Love and Rugby. A podcast about family, club, sport, and our love for all three. Welcome to episode four of Love and Rugby. We have to start by giving a huge shout out to the boys of the Boston Rugby Club for giving it their all in Buffalo this weekend. While they did not come away with the playoff wins that they were hoping for, they should be so proud of what they have accomplished and where they are going in the future. The emotions of wins and losses in games big and small are fleeting, but the love that you find in the game you carry with you forever. Please enjoy this episode of Love and Rugby. Okay, today we have one of our favorite people in the whole world. Um, His time with Boston Rugby was short, but his impact on our lives has been immeasurable. Um, He looms so large that we named our daughter after him, Jack Nivett. English Jack. Hi. Hello. Hello, both. (laughs) How are you? That's a, that's a lovely, lovely <laughs> intro, isn't it? I, I wonder also, was my time that short? It probably was at Boston, wasn't it? I think as an active player. Two seasons. Yeah. That's right. I mean, yeah. compared to Dave, right? Relative. <laughs> everyone, everyone is short compared to Dave. <laughs> exactly. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Where are you joining us from? English Jack. Uh, I'm joining you from For the Green Titchmarsh, Great Britain. Beauty. Which? Yeah, your favorite place, David. My favorite place in the world. Actually, actually, mum and dad both send their love. They they made me say I had to say that, and they said you can cut it out if you want. Right. No, we would never. Um, and for those who don't know where Titchmarsh is, it's like an hour and a half north of London. Yeah, so yes. drove up from London, yes, this morning, in fact. Yeah, in about an hour and a half north. So Titchmarsh is fairly close to where rugby was invented. Not far from. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, so uh, rugby. Yes. Rugby school near Warwickshire. That's about it's about an, an hour max away from here. Uh, an hour west. Yeah, yeah, no, but yeah, about an hour northwest. Northwest. So, eighteen um, hundreds England people, and by people I mean everyone, villagers would play something they called football, which was pretty similar to our American soccer, um, but with the difference that you could actually catch the ball. You kicked you did same same rules as soccer, kicking ball, but you could catch the ball 
place it down and basically have like a penalty kick. And then 18... Yeah. A bit like Gaelic football, maybe. I don't know much about Irish sports, but I think Gaelic football is still a bit like that, isn't it? similar to that. So you had to score the try or the touchdown and you got no no points from it. No. No. This was like soccer where you did have a goal of where you were trying to cross. I don't think they called it a touchdown. I mean, it was still with your feet. And you could only, you could use your hands to catch the ball and put it down on the ground and basically have a free kick. In the, you had to put it down in the, in the zone, right? No. Oh, no? Yeah. No, like you caught that you're in the middle of play, you catch the ball and you put it down where you are. Like you literally stop and put the ball down and kick the ball. Like it was part of the play. All right. Of the game. And you weren't allowed to run with the ball in your hands. If you caught the ball, you had to stop and put the ball down. And then at rugby school, one day in 1823, a fellow named William Webb Ellis caught the ball and instead of putting the ball down, ran with it. And that was the invention of rugby. Chaos and <laughs> From there, chaos, it, that's where it all started. And... um Interestingly, so they started playing that way. And as I said, the previous game was villagers playing. I mean, kids, adults, and like whole villages would play against each other and they would play in the streets. And it was very um, aggressive and violent. And the yeah. government started banning the play of it. Because, Is that right? yeah, because people. So many workers were getting hurt and not being able to go to work, like because they were getting seriously injured, that they banned the play of it. Um, and wow. yeah, and so Dave, you had in episode one had said rugby is a gentleman sport. No, how does it go? Rugby is a hooligan sport played, played by, by gentlemen. And soccer is a, a gentleman sport played, played by, by hooligans. So, and I think this is where this saying comes from because rugby continued because they were outlying what they called football, which was the villagers playing in the streets. But at rugby school was a school for, um, we'll say upper class kids. I don't know if it was elementary and up or if it was just high school, but it was kids and they had a field that wasn't the streets, and so they were able to keep playing, and they were playing rugby, the the new way of advancing yep. with the ball. Um, and so, whereas soccer was becoming was being outlawed, rugby was then developing in these upper class schools, and then they would leave the schools and would bring it to Oxford and Cambridge, the universities. That's right. And actually the Cambridge Rugby Club, Cambridge University Rugby Club is the oldest or one of the oldest rugby clubs in the country. So that's like an 1850, something like that. Surely there's an older rugby club in America, though. (laughs) No. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. sure. Did America even exist in 1850? I mean, I, I don't know. The first rugby game in America was played in 1874 against Harvard and McGill University. And it was Is that a, right. That's yeah. wow. That's good. And in the 1870s, and I'm sure it was someone came from England, of course. Yeah. 
or more than one person and brought I'm pioneer, it with Dave, like me. But in eight, it was in it wasn't until the 1870s that um, the rules were established. Well, and they called them laws because all these kids who had played at rugby school then went on to become lawyers, and so they made up the rules. And because they were lawyers, they called them laws. So. And, and actually, though, it's interestingly, and I've been talking about this recently, so the fact that they're laws is one of the best nuances of rugby compared to other sport because there's no absolute in a sense. So it's not like, oh, you know, well, I mean, I suppose there are some laws where there's absolutes, like a knock-on, but interpretation by the referee means that not everything is the same in every game, which I think is one of the attractive things about having laws versus rules. Rules, you know, laws can be massaged, rules are broken, right? Exactly, and I think um, a good ref will will use that to his advantage because different. I think different games require different interpretations of said laws. I quite agree. I quite agree. You know, you want to speed a game up, you want a decent ref that allows you to play advantage for longer periods of time, you get used to it. Breakdowns being messy, you know, it's up to him to sort it out, and if he allows it to flow, maybe the game flows better. Yeah. yeah. It's one of it's one of the beautiful differences, isn't it? Do you know? Uh, just quickly, and this uh, forgive me if this if this is boring, but so in Rutland, which is halfway between here and rugby, they still do a an annual event called bottle kicking, and bottle kicking comes from about eighteen thirty, where one one side of the village, one village, sorry tries to get to the their their basically barrel, which is the bottle they're talking about, to the other side of the village over a creek, and the vice versa. And the only rule is that the the bottle has to go from said village to other said village. And they have teams of about fifty blokes all fighting to get the bottle over. That's and that's a sort of variation of rugby as was. And that still goes exactly. on today. I've done it. I actually did it with um, a guy called Harry Ellis, who used to be um, scrum half for Leicester Tigers. Um, um, back in the any relation the to William? <laughs> no relation, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> but um, but yeah, and, and it's and it's it's dark, like people get hurt doing yes. it. It's like massive, essentially big malls of people trying to move this one. And so, right, and that's when rugby started, that's what it was. I mean, that's what it came out Mm. of, and that's why they were outlawing this, what they just called football, because too many people were getting hurt, and, of course, medicine was different then, and so they would essentially not be able to, they were running out of workers. And it would be like 200, I mean, in the entire village. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's pretty exactly amazing that. when you but, think about that. What's the name of that sport? Bottle kicking? Bottle kicking, it's called. Bottle yeah. kicking. That's probably like, you know, rugby is an old sport, but if you watch a rugby game now and a rugby game back in the 1850s, it, they're totally different because it's, it's, oh, it's, yes. it's evolved. This bottle kicking sport yeah. is an unevolved sport from <laughs> who knows when that this village has <laughs> been continuing. It's absolutely amazing. Well, what yeah, I, isn't it? I love, you get a kick out of it, Dave. I would. I love I, that it's the whole village involved. Like, it's not kid, just kids playing. It's not, you know, some, oh, yeah. like, 
organized team. It's just like the whole village, yeah. like our village is going to beat your village. Newton versus Wellesley. That's yeah. it. So, um, that's, I think a little bit of exception, it, it exactly. sounds like a little bit of deception would be easy. Just put the bottle in some pick kid's pocket and no one knows where it is. And Wait, no, it's a giant there. barrel. It, it's, Oh, it's not a bottle. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was picturing that. Like you could definitely get that even in your pocket. Yeah. The, um, just one other... And of course, it's why rugby is called rugby football as well, right? Right, because of where it was. Because the origins of soccer, as you Americans call it, i.e. they started playing football and then rugby evolved from football and now it's called rugby football. Right. But because of the location of where it was invented. No, no. Oh, well, it's called rugby, rugby because yes, of that. Yes, yes, exactly. yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. know why we call it soccer, where that word came from. I don't from. know why we – well, yeah, I'm not sure about – because the rest of the world calls it football, right? Yes. Yeah, we're the only, no, yeah, we're the only ones who call it soccer. So I have no idea yeah. where that came from. Um, but just one more thing on the history, which is the shape of the ball, um, which for Americans is similar to – a football, an American football, but it's larger and it's more um, like the M's are flat. It's more oblong. But um, it came from their first balls were pig bladder, inflated pig bladders. And then the modern rugby ball was invented in New Zealand. Someone came up with the pump, the insertable pump to be able to inflate something else. I mean, I guess maybe they were like, maybe they were like blowing the pig bladder with their mouths, or maybe it was a full. It would have been. Yeah. 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 Um, Imagine playing with one of those, Dave. Imagine how heavy that ball would have been. It's funny because I've heard that pig bladder story about the football, the American football, and um, as the origin. And what, what, what I think probably most Americans don't realize, and I don't even know, I is is how how football is a direct descendant of rugby. American football is a direct mm. descendant of rugby, which is a descendant of soccer, AKA football. Um, and I, I'd be interested in seeing how that transformation came about from rugby to American football on the gridiron with pads. We'll have to we'll, we'll how, do our research and do that in another episode. Yeah. I'd, I'd definitely be interested in that because how do you go from a, a sport where the law is very clear on passing the ball back to someone saying, we're going to take everything we like from rugby, but then we're going to throw the ball forward. I mean, it's it's interesting. It'd be, I'd be really interested to see how it's evolved from that yeah. because it's so counterintuitive, right? Yeah. I would say, I don't know if it's everything we love from rugby. Because I feel like it's taken all of the bad things, <laughs> like stopping, like when rugby actually stops and the – and then, like hitting in a different way, like take I mean, it, it is, like it removing is, the world, is, the rules about tackling, and um, yeah, yeah. It, it's strange because it's definitely, and Dave and I have discussed this before. It's it's a it's a sport. American sport football is a sport I like, but it's very stop start. It's much, mm-hmm. but it's very strategic, like rugby union is. Um, and it and there are lots of elements of it that are very similar. You know, tackle, passing the ball laterally. Mm-hmm. kicking the ball but it's almost a game of perpetual restarts like you say rather than right. so like a, a game right. of perpetual scrums or perpetual lineouts restarting the game um so it doesn't flow as much 
it's it's um yeah it's similar but not the same right right it's strange which is and um you mentioned rugby union so there's two different types of rugby rugby union as you said and rugby league and i'll let Mm. you guys differentiate well english jack is the expert on this so we'll deal with it put in his hands i'm gonna i'm gonna go for a big answer on this you are so It's a really interesting differential between the two sports. So what we were talking about before is rugby versus football. And Sashin, your point around rugby school being elitist, Mm -hmm. uh, social, you know, social hierarchy. So where you have football and rugby, where there's a class divide, people that play rugby generally um, are perceived to be from wealthier backgrounds, more privileged backgrounds than footballers. Rugby Union and Rugby League has a similar geographical and class difference. So in the UK, for example, most, not all, but most rugby league teams are from the north, from places like Halifax and Yorkshire and places like that. Mm -hmm. And then Rugby Union is seen as a sort of southern public school privileged sport. But they only separated in, oh, I'm going to get told off for getting my dates wrong, but something like the 40s maybe the 30s or 40s because um, rugby league players were playing on Sundays because that was the only time they had time off from work they would get to your point earlier they would get injured Mm -hmm. and then wouldn't be able to go down the pits and you know mine for coal and what have you so their employers started getting annoyed so what they started doing was paying them to play where union people played on Saturdays and largely had professional jobs. So it didn't matter if they got a bit bit bashed up at the weekend. They could still be doctors and accountants and what have you. Mm-hmm. And they separated mm-hmm. because the union didn't want people to be paid to play the game. Mm. And what the league players did when they came up with a game, which is really good, and I really love it, they reduced the amount of players on the pitch by two. So union has 15, league has 13, to create more space to allow for more entertaining rugby in many ways i.e more try score more running with the ball Mm -hmm. don't have line outs so you tap and start and they do have what they call head and feed which is a scrum but it's uncontested Mm -hmm. it's very different i could i could talk about it for a lot but it and the just to going back to what you were saying rugby league is much closer to american football because it also has uh, downs for lack of a better word right like you have possession for a certain amount of time and then it switch, switches possession do you know what i hadn't thought about that but that's absolutely right so yeah you have you have secured possession uh for a, for six tackles so it and seems like evolution may have gone from football to soccer of course to rugby to rugby league to, to american, american football, football. Yeah, well, you Seems might find closer. actually that. Well, and because as you from, say, thirteen and there's twelve players on for American football, right? But there's eleven. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, well, eleven, right? So it's yeah, it does seem like that might have been mm. the evolution. Sorry, go ahead, Jack. Just, no, I was going to say it might. It might. You might find that the rugby league community actually nicked a bit more from the American football community in a sense of the downs because. You know, it's it's probably American football is probably a quite an older game, I would say, than rugby league. I don't know. Maybe. I could be we'll wrong. To, I think. We'll I mean, I think the first game was like Harvard Yale in the um, 
for know, football. American for American football. football. It was Harvard, Yale in the mm. 1850s. That sounds like I could be wrong on that. And just to be clear, the rugby that we have been talking about and will continue to talk about and that both of you play is rugby union. And when people say rugby, they're usually referring to rugby union. And if it's rugby league, they refer to it either as rugby league or just league. I don't know. Right, but they differ. Or in Australia, they refer to it. They do. Yeah. In Australia, they refer to it as footy, as rugby league, which is even more confusing. Oh, for my us, gosh. For, for us, because then we're yeah. thinking soccer for that. That's right, yeah. But you're right. When, when most people just say rugby, they, they mean union. That's the more global game. Right. Sport. So I wonder yeah. why is rugby, and I, I do know that that's true, well, generally true, that rugby is a bit in the higher class of society why is that so, so it's largely because oh sorry no go you you here. answer so i was going to say it's largely because um so if we talked about the origin of of rugby being at rugby school which is a fee-paying independent school the the that sort of continues really where the cornerstone of most schools fee-paying schools is rugby in what they call the Michaelmas term, which is the term before Christmas, where most state-funded schools play football in that term. And that's always been one of those differentiating factors. So mostly what you'll find is through school and university, the dominant male sport is probably rugby, um, where in state-funded schools it's football. And most people who come through a non-fee-paying school into the England team, for example, would have learned to play rugby at their local rugby club. And that's one of the interesting dynamics about union over here in a sense that, you know, you guys have it slightly differently over there and we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. But, you know, you have a, a grassroots rugby club mentality that actually isn't very isn't very socioeconomically well off or upper class in any way. It's just good old boys playing rugby and because they love mm-hmm. it. And then you have this this complete section of society that play a very elite school level rugby. And they all sort of when it gets to representative level, they all sort of mesh in together. Mm-hmm. So so it isn't probably as as elitist as it, it might seem. Right. But it definitely has that reputation. Yeah. But it and it's more likely that if you went to a fee-paying school that you're playing rugby instead of soccer. So it's probably now more about the differentiation is more between rugby and soccer a bit. Yeah. 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 I mean, that, that's, that's the reality, you know, you will be, you will play rugby at school. Mm -hmm. If you go to a fee-paying school, it will be house rugby. It will be school rugby Mm -hmm. and the dominant national school, sort of student rugby match mm-hmm. is called the daily mail cup which you play when you're 14 to 18 i think and that's all fee-paying schools okay. so if you're not if you're non-fee-paying you don't get in okay. so when by I fee-paying grew up playing, schools you mean like private school yes yeah of any private age schools. even <clears throat> younger kids yeah yeah so through so you start playing rugby at school probably at prep school through sort of seven you play up until sixth form 
where at, at, at state-funded schools you probably wouldn't start. If you did play rugby, you'd probably start at age 13 or something, mm. but it'd be unusual to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and funnily enough, when I started playing representative rugby, so in the sort of 90s, when um, you go for England caps, you play for the Midlands. When I played for the Midlands in England, David, <laughs> the um, it was only the school system that allowed you to do that. So it used to be called rugby, England Rugby Schools, and only the schools that were fee-paying were able to play in that. And then in 98, they did a clubs and school system. It's changed now, but that was, you know, that was before before the sort of before 2000 before i came to america that's what it was still like if you went to eaton harrow or rugby so really that's that's why we used to the world so really quick um tell us what representative rugby is um rep rugby is when you represent your county which is like or your state um and then um, the age group national level rugby. Okay. So what they have here is a, is a system of trying to bring people through the, what you have is county. My, my rep area was the Midlands. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be like the Midwest versus East and West coast. Mm-hmm. And then n- national level age, they started at under 16s through to 21s. Okay. So how old were you when you started playing? I was seven. Amazing. And I hated rugby. Did you? No. Hated. You did. Yeah. This, I don't know if I've ever told you this, Dave. So I actually said to my dad when I was standing in a cold Andal rugby club, on the and he was picking. He was having a pint in the clubhouse, and I was like wanting to go home because I was cold. I said, um, "I don't really love rugby, Dad. Do you think I could take up something much more fun like fishing?" <laughs> I said those words. You ask, you ask my dad. Uh, that's what I, we had it. We had a big thing about me wanting to be a coarse fisherman. Yeah, that's amazing. And, yeah. So, and then he... Go ahead. I was just talking to him about it because I was saying, hey, Dad, do you remember when I... And he said, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you mean when we had the, when we had the fishing debate? Um, yeah. So, and then, and then it got to sort of under eight. So after about a year, then I started enjoying it more. And the difference between... So obviously, as you know, Digby, Digby and Otis play rugby. It's much more. Um, it's much more controlled now. So back in in 1988, when I started playing, it was just full contact. Here you go, throw the kid in. Oh, it was, was starting big, off I, at seven. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I get five men in a scrum. I could see not yeah. liking that. Definitely from the get go, especially when it's cold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, did your dad play rugby? So dad played very poorly. Um, and did, I would say was quite a big. He was in the second row, even though he's what five foot ten, um, which was big back in the day, I guess. And he played for a club called Tabard, um, who were in North London, who are actually very good now. But he played for their fifths, um, so the fifth side. And so he didn't, and he didn't enjoy. It. He did it because it was a drinking uh, culture. So then, when you're saying he played for them, you mean as an adult. Like you aren't you, you're yeah, not you as don't mean as a kid, but yeah. So he was playing as no, an adult. Yeah, exactly. He, yeah, but quite. he loves and he did it because he enjoyed. He's a huge fan. He's a huge rugby fan. He's a huge yes. fan. Yeah. Although, although I would say, I would say the interesting uh, difference in my my household is that Dad loves rugby, 
but knows much, much less about rugby than my mother, who used to come to all of my games and didn't know anything about rugby uh, because she's from the north. So read a book on rugby and um, watched all of my games and support. So she actually knows a hell of a lot more than probably me or dad. It doesn't surprise me. Yes, your mother is amazing. Yes. <laughs> but she came to every game of I played. Course. I all rep rugby and everything. Of course. My dad was at work. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Dad came on with rugby tours, but she came to all the games. Yeah. Oh. And when your dad came to the games, he was sitting there chopping pipes with the with his bros, and she was not. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Correct. He was actually watching what was yeah. going on and giving me pointers. He he was chopping pints and having cigars with his yeah. pals. Exactly. I love it. Brilliant. I love it. Isn't that funny? So you played seven. By the time you're eight, you start to like it. And then, of course, you play all through school and at university. Yes. That's right. And yeah. then you graduate and play for a club in England or no? So, um, at U- yeah. So, at uni, so basically what happened to me was I, I played rec rugby through to 18 then I went into the Northampton Academy to play rugby there never played for the ones sat on the bench uh, behind Tim Robber and um, which was good and then then decided I didn't really want to be a professional rugby player I wanted to go to rugby uh, to uni and have fun Mm -hmm. so I did that but played at uni um, and we won the national what you'd have here like the sort of um, the collegiate cup so what would that be like the the taco ball or the what are they? The yes, ball? I know we and have a football. million. Yeah, like the rose yeah. bowl or but the, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we want what it's called here was the Busa Cup, so British Universities Association Rugby Cup. So we won that in our second year, which was good. And I played with some guys that went on to play professional rugby for England, which was good. So it was a good standard. And then I was playing for a local club, but I decided to put my name onto a website for people looking for rugby players internationally. And the first person that responded was Randall from Boston Rugby Club. How mental Amazing. is that? So, then so that's yeah, how you so came to you- Boston. Yeah, and I like Dawson's Creek, so I thought, well, that's set in Boston, so that would be <laughs> Not knowing it was actually, actually filmed in Carolina. But... Um, yeah, so that's how it happened, and then I literally and how old had were a few you? calls with him. Twenty, twenty-one, oh, okay. So you were just out of uni- you weren't out of university for long before you came. Yeah, out no. Right? So okay. I I came I came to Boston in August, and I graduated from uni in in the May of that year. Oh, I think it was so twenty-two was actually. Because yeah. So tell us about yeah. coming to Boston and your intro to the Boston Rugby Club. Mate, I, I, you know, so obviously I've been thinking about that and because of this podcast. And it, it's amazing, really, when you think about it. So basically what happened was I got on a flight. Mum and Dad drove me to Heathrow Airport, got on a flight with a massive bag of rugby gear, basically. All my other mates went travelling to you know South Africa or Australia or whatever. And the guy that picked me up from at the airport with a little piece of paper <laughs> uh, saying Boston Rugby, was Randall, <laughs> the club president. And uh, anyway, so I remember, uh, so he took me home to his house and I, uh, and then we, I don't know what we did, but it was training that night. 
So, and that was the fateful time. I don't know if you remember this, Dave, where I absolutely leveled him yes. in the first training session. <laughs> there was a like two on one defensive uh, set, and he was pretty slow with the ball. Actually, I just absolutely creamed yes. him. And um, <laughs> which was shocking because and then we I thought you guys were friends because you showed up together. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And I felt a bit bad because I was going back to his house. <laughs> yeah, I do remember that. Um, so really, really then, quick, your position, your prop. Mm. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So I started as a um, blindside flanker, but got a bit slow, uh, frankly. And then they moved me into loose head prop. And that's where I played ever since. Number one, baby. Which is the big lineman type, lineman type style body for anyone who needs to know. And when yeah, was a big and when you when day, you but... say they move like at what age did you switch position, roughly? So I moved in there about ni- age eighteen. Okay. So like nineteen ninety eight, I think it yeah. was. So I played rep rugby at six, and then got slow and got told to move in when I was at Northampton. So you, um, okay, we're going to get back to the Boston, but really quickly, you had mentioned you decided you didn't want to be a professional rugby player. So like at one point you were thinking you wanted to be a professional rugby player. Yeah, I, I was the, um, so I was playing at Northampton. I was obviously, as you guys know me so well, reasonably arrogant about what, what my life was going to pan out like. So, you know, in America, I guess they call them yearbooks yes. today at the end of when you leave yes. school. So we had a similar thing. And I just signed my autograph in all of them <laughs> because I was like, well, I'm going to be worth work. something when I play for England. <laughs> so you actually that. sat on the bench for the first side of the Northampton Saints. Yeah. And who was but it who remember, you sat So Tim Robber started at, at eight. He was club captain. And a guy called Budge Pountney was playing six. Both of them captained their country, Scotland and England, um, and in those days, of course, in the 90s, you only came on as a replacement if someone got injured, really. It wasn't like it is now. It wasn't considered a 23-man game. So he didn't get injured and I didn't come on. And therefore, the other people that were injured for, to allow me to sit on the bench um, got fit again. And I, I never featured ever again. So what, um, <laughs> how did you fare in the, how, how did you fare, um, in, the, in the practices? So, it, mate, it was really good. I, I've got a great story, um, which I tell a lot of people about Tim Robber, whom I don't like very much. And um, so we had a tr- training session and a guy called Grant Seeley, who was uh, played at Northampton, uh, sort of club man, number eight. He said, uh, Nivet, you hate uh, you hate Robber, don't you? And I was like, yeah, I don't like him very much. He was like, we're going to set up a, um, a sort of drill where will you set up a ruck? And then they're going to take the ball. So why don't you just set up the ruck, ruck on Robber? So pass me the ball. And I was like, right, lads, watch this. I'm going to take Tim Robber out. And I ran at him and I hit him as hard as I possibly could, I would say, as a sort of 18-year-old. And he didn't move. And I got winded <laughs> and uh, hit the ground. And everyone carried on. And I was just left there going, <gasps> this guy was six foot six and 18 stone. He was a big unit. <laughs> you but, knew that. Uh, you could just run him over. I thought I'd, I thought I'd have him, yeah. But again, as ever, as you know me well enough, I overcooked it a bit, really. So um, I would say, mate, that I wasn't good enough to to play. I wasn't committed enough um, to be at that level 
for a long period of time. You, you know, you played with me enough. I enjoyed it, but I had um, I didn't have the application. You enjoyed really. it. You did not have the application, and um, <clears throat> and you're always very arrogant about how good you were. Well, yes, I would say all of those it, things are totally sometimes accurate. Sometimes you need that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'm I mean, not it's saying like, it's a bad thing at yeah. all. I'm just saying that's the way he was when he showed up. And so you get this um, email contact from Chris Randall. Mm-hmm. And what did he say about Boston? Like, was there any appeal other than, <laughs> like, Dawson's Creek? This sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny, isn't it? That was the first thing I thought when it was in Boston. I was like, oh, that's that's Boston's Creek band. Um, You know, maybe I'll meet Joey. That'd be great. Um, (laughs) um, So I would would say that he probably did a pretty good sales job Mm -hmm. on me, saying that the Boston Rugby Club was um, one of the top five elite clubs in the country, Super League founding member. Um, The quality of the the team is full of former Eagles internationals. Mm -hmm. Um, all of which yes. are true. Well, full of, I think was, we had was... one or two <laughs> Eagles. Yes, yeah. I think, yeah, maybe maybe yeah. two mostly. Um, but I would say when I arrived and, and uh, you know, saw the, the training facilities, mm-hmm. I was a bit sort of, I did think to myself, I'm not entirely, like even the, the smallest rugby club in the UK has a clubhouse with changing sheds and a bar. Yes. Um, and largely doesn't have to you know, share the pitch with people playing frisbee or and things like that. So it was, it was definitely a lot different to how I imagined it might be for an elite super league. Right. I think we were on a turf field, turf football, American football line field <coughs> at that time. Is that right? That's James right. We Madison. were. Yeah. 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 High school. Yeah, that's high right. High school field. Um, was it high school? Yeah. Was yeah. It so I think we were on a high school football field when you showed up. And yeah. Which was um, strange. Yes, I'm sure it was a, um, especially coming from, okay, maybe I'm going to be a professional rugby player on the bench for the <laughs> Northampton Saints. That's a really big yeah. um, difference. How was the level of rugby? So I have to say that I said to the lads, so obviously we're at university, you know, um, we, you know, again, it was it was pretty elite in terms of the sport. I mean, you know, you had people coming to watch the games. So I expected the quality in America to be very poor, very, very poor. Um, and I got there, and I remember the first training session, Randall aside, who I would think we could all agree was probably not the most gifted of rugby players, but, you know. He was known um, as the speed bump the- for a long time. Yes, I mean, I think that's a pretty accurate nickname for him. Um, I thought that the level of physical conditioning was was strong, was very high, and I thought the skill set of a lot of the lads was way better than I thought it was going to be. But it was mixed, right? There were guys who were still learning the game, who were adults, and there were guys who had obviously played a fair bit more and had a pretty good understanding. I would say that the big thing that that having times like growing up playing and watching the sport, you have a much, much better understanding of the nuances of the game and how the game flows and where space and how it's created. And a lot of the guys that we played with Dave back then who were learning the sport were just learning 
they understood the basics they understood how to play rugby but as you now know having played it for so long there's so much more to it than just understanding how to execute various yeah, things a slow unfit player can who picks a good line can be much more effective and what did you think of dave's rugby skill oh <laughs> mediocre <laughs> so he knows all about this. So basically, so I met Dave on the first training ca- uh, training evening on a Tuesday. Was it Tuesday we used to train? Mm-hmm. At the Kimvara. Yeah, maybe so it was the Thursday. Thursdays were the nights we would go out after. Right. So it was a Thursday. And I, I had been like, everyone was like, oh, yeah, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so I sat next to Dave after training in the pub. And he was like, he was obviously incredibly talkative as he is. And, um, he said about three words to me. And I said to him, because obviously I'm reasonably chatty, I was like, Jesus Christ, I don't want to stay at Randall's anymore. Like, I'm going to have to sort that out. And Dave said, why don't you just come and stay at the big house with me? And the rest is history. Twenty the years. Rest, the rest is history. The rest is history. That's, that's amazing. It. So that's yep. your first night of training or second night of training? Second night of being in America, first night of training. <laughs> So we were sat three words, <laughs> three words, and he says, "Why don't you just come stay with me?" That's right. And I remember, so, he, used to, he used to pick me up for every game and every training session as well, if you remember. Yeah. So the big house was a construction site that Dave literally lived in and yep. worked on. Yeah. And yep. so, how long did you stay there before you moved to an apartment above the Green Briar? Correct. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In Brighton. So I reckon I was about maybe 10 days, but I was only probably at the big house for about three, although I left all mm-hmm. my stuff there because I went up to go and stay in Maine for a bit, if you remember. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then when I got back, myself, Andy McLean and Diego, whose surname I don't know, all moved into the apartment in the, um, yeah, above the Greenbrier. Yeah. Which was fun, some, but they still people, pick me up every day. Some people claim that that, that uh, apartment's what broke the club financially. Well, <laughs> I'll be honest with because... you, I definitely paid my rent. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I think after you guys left, at one point it was full of a bunch of non-players. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. That the club. So just out of curiosity... Did you sleep at the big house that night? Did you go straight straight from the bar home with with old Prelly, or did you have to go sleep one more night with Chris Randall? One more night, one more night at Randall's, then then I uh, got my stuff together and got a taxi to the big house. It's too bad you just didn't just come straight home with me. Look at it, this. I, it would have been a better story, wouldn't it? <laughs> you, it's still a pretty amazing story. So your two loves after rugby, me and Jack, both. Well, not necessarily in that order. Well, Jack and me. Yes. <laughs> your life, your soulmates. You met, met at, at the Kinvara. That's where, that's where we, we met too. Well, it does. It's no, just is not that right? Kin- it's just called the kin- not called the Kinvara. We had but some, it's still we had there. some wild nights there. Jeez. Oh, that was back when Boston Rugby Club partied hard. Yeah. I I did not. I have never heard this story. Somehow. Did not realize yep. your first night of training. You That's and it. Dave, That's I, it's I, like love at first right? sight. Wasn't there a baseball like... game? Didn't you come <laughs> straight to a baseball game? Oh, no, that's right. So I tell you what I did. 
I flew in on the Wednesday and went straight to a Red Sox game. Well, that's and a pretty then, good start. Which was amazing, although I got lost in Fenway because <laughs> it was obviously enormous and, and I was foreign. Um, and then that's right. And then the next day, so it was the the first training session was the Thursday I went to. That's right. It's tricky because so the gate my... and seat numbers are written in English, in American English, yeah. not in English English. It's funny that, yeah, funny. I just felt very foreign all of a sudden. I definitely got lost. <laughs> It was very big, um, and and yeah, that's right. And then Thursday session sat sat eating my my pasta or whatever it was next to your man here. And um, as I say, after a conversation of about ten minutes of me talking to him and him saying three words, he invited me back to the big house. Yeah, to be fair, I did not envy you staying at Randall's at all. <laughs> yes, I think that was de- it. Was more solidarity, wasn't it? Like yeah, that would be a sure. terrible place to be. Well, whatever the reason, yeah. it started it all. I think it's fair to say as well, Sashin, that Dave um, didn't understand half of what I was saying oh, um, I bet. In, in the first few few weeks, <laughs> months of our relationship. Yes, That's which something. is maybe what brought you together. I mean, maybe yeah. happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's something I definitely noticed um, coming from Wisconsin to Boston and playing with the Boston Rugby Club is I didn't know, I couldn't place an English or Australian or Kiwi accent before playing rugby. And it did take a while to get used, uh, accustomed to be able to understand what the heck you guys are saying. Yeah, that was clear. Well, I, remember you, I remember you saying that one time. I'm going to level with you, man. I don't really know what you're saying. <laughs> Three, year, three years into your relationship. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, though, because you asked about Dave. So so I would say, so one of the things I've always said about American rugby players is because they don't grow up playing it, they excel as they get older because they've played, watched, enjoyed rugby more. Mm-hmm. And the, Dave was, was complete opposite to me, right? So I remember him eating like a horse trying to keep weight on and being like, I've lost another 10 pounds or whatever. Um, and me, obviously, being a much bigger man, thinking I could just sit, like, and look at a, a pizza and put on two kilos. Um, and I would say that you are a far better player than you were then, where you were tough, knew the laws, like, knew what you were doing. But like you said before about running lines, like, you played rugby Right, and we threw him up in the lineout. He was the most amazing lineout jumper, and still is, obviously, that ever. Like I could, I could throw him up one-handed, and we used mm-hmm. to do this thing where you remember Dave when I used to pop you up, and I'd lose you for about two feet because yep. you got so yep. high. Catch you again, and you'd steal the ball every time. Yeah, and we had. I mean, there's so many times where the the opposition hooker just lost his mind because he couldn't throw over Dave because we mm-hmm. got him so high. And then I reckon when I came back for the fiftieth. Mm-hmm. So when would that have been? That would have been about... 10 years. <clears throat> well, now 12 years ago. So, yeah, 2010. So it's mm-hmm. pretty much eight years after I had first seen Dave play. It was mm-hmm. night and day. Yeah, He was a much more uh, intuitive player running lines that he wasn't running eight years before mm-hmm. and much more effective because of that. It's and funny, I think right? As you get- there's a couple of reasons. One is just age and time playing Two is the change in coaching from going from volunteer player coaches to having very skilled, knowledgeable coaches. And three is 
Sashin being like your mom and telling him, watching every game and telling him, you need to do this and you need to do that. His in, personal in coach. Very, <laughs> absolutely. And I, you know, funny enough, it's, uh, it's really, it's really interesting you say that because um, I remember a time when you came over to the UK and we were in London watching London Irish play Mosley and you pulled me up on my rugby knowledge when I said, um, I can't remember what I called, I called it extra time or something. And you were like, no, it can't be extra time. It's just overtime. And I was like, well, no, it's extra time, isn't it? And you were like, well, no, because the game hasn't finished. It doesn't finish until the the you know a knock on or an infringement. I was like, oh yeah, Sachin, yeah, fine. You were <laughs> that was just me being a know it all. Like, <laughs> but it proves your point. You know, you learned about it. I very much believe that rugby is a sport where you know you can be fit and hard and fast and throw a perfect pass and catch a perfect ball and kick a perfect ball. But um, a guy who who has played for a long time and knows how to run a line, <laughs> how to run the correct line is going to be a much more effective player. I totally agree. Which, which, frankly, mate, is why even though you were getting a bit older and a bit slower, you were more effective because you were running lines which helped the team out, created space, got behind the defensive line that you wouldn't have run when you were super fit and yeah, young and, and keen. There's also I, remember, I think it was you who told me once... Um, that that someday when you're playing rugby, the game will slow down. And I remember when I was playing the Super League game because it was always like chaos, like like just I felt like bodies are trampling around me. And then there was one day where I was in the bottom of the ruck, and I was like, "Wow, this game just seems manageable." And and yeah, the pace is actually 100%. something I can understand right now. You you start seeing it for what it is, and you and rather than rather than um. That whole, and we've all been there where it feels like chaos is happening around you at a thousand miles an hour and you're not really into the game and you don't know. When it slows down like that, you start seeing space. You start seeing the game for what it is. Oh, well, there are, there are two phases here, and then we're going to be going right. And I can see that already, and we haven't even done those two phases because that's the natural way we should go because that's where the space is. And it, and it does change. When it's going like that, it's a beautiful sport, right? Everyone thinks it's just this thuggish, brutal sport. But when you can see, when you're watching a game and you can see where the ball's going, mm-hmm. it's like, wow, how's it going to get there? That's where the space is, and seeing it move, beautiful to watch. It is. I'm not saying Dave's beautiful to watch, but um, but certainly rugby is. When when it's a line out, he's beautiful to watch for sure. I've got to say, I mean, so one one of the natural things that you had, Dave, was not just it was not just your size and our ability to throw you up, but you had a, a lot of people, big people, big guys, I mean, find it difficult to jump and allow the, the lifters to get them high, which seems really like a basic thing. But some people have got it and some people haven't. There's a bit of bravery in that because you're being thrown up very high in the air and still keeping your shape. And that's what you always used to do. You never used to kick me in the nuts like so many other people did when they got a bit scared and their feet came up at the back. It's funny because when, um, when you're mentioning that, throwing, that you used to throw me, and, and I actually was thinking, I remember that with uh, fondness. Like it's, it was comfortable to me. Like there was no part of discomfort from me getting lifted up and thrown in the air and then getting caught. It was something I actually felt very comfortable doing. So I'm just going to quickly give tell people what a lineout is for those who don't know, which is the ball goes out of bounds. Then you throw the ball back in. 
both teams line up in lines and you have each team is lifting a person up in the air to catch the ball that is getting thrown down the middle. And Dave's position, second row, is typically the position that'll go up to jump. And that has been Dave's um, for the past 20 years, real significant talent. Not the only thing, but I mean, (laughs) something that you have done really well. And, and I'm glad that you bring up the lifting because the lifting is as much a part of it as, um, what Dave does. Is there something like you said in him letting you lift him and then what he's able to do with his arms? Because I've seen really athletic people be terrible line out um line out people because they can't he has this flow to what his upper body does when he goes up um absolutely but you know that must sorry i was gonna say that must be natural yes because like you know that's not been taught yeah i always always felt comfortable in the line out i I Mm. don't remember ever feeling uncomfortable and just just to clarify so the lift consists of two lifters lifting the jumper by their shorts or by their thighs and holding them up in the air. That's right. Like, like a or, dro- or dropping, or dropping them, them. <laughs> as, as often. But that's another thing, you know, you've got to be brave to be thrown 12 feet up in the air and know there is a, there is a reality that someone might drop you and you could easily fall and break something. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also, I, you know, you were talking about how comfortable you were. Like, you've got to remember that because rugby is such a team sport, and we that particularly that time we were very tight as a as a group of blokes playing rugby. Yes. And yeah. you and I obviously best mates, and therefore you always knew I would stay and catch you. Well, most of the time, but you know what I mean. And and there's something in that that like, gives you confidence the to trust. get another two. Yeah, the trust to get another two inches to steal the ball, knowing that, don't worry, I know he'll be there to catch me. Yeah. And I never drop you. No. And I will say a few seasons ago, the lineouts were terrible. And I kept saying to Dave, you have to teach these lifters. It was all the lifting. And I could see it every single game. And I was watching them. And I'm like, they don't know how to lift. Like they, the, they are not doing their job. And that's why, you know, he'd come home and be like, like I got to do something about the lineouts, and then like it's because of the lifting that's the problem. Yeah. So it really is the full unit, and it, it is li- li- um, lifting is a relatively new in the history of rugby aspect of rugby. There was like sixties and seventies the the lineout jumpers. Oh, it was so it was in the nineties that it came. The yeah. the jumpers literally just jumped themselves individuals. That's right. As individuals. They, it's really interesting. So the, the history is that it went from jumpers. So you, you you couldn't touch until you caught the ball. You couldn't touch the player. Then it came in probably in the late nineties that they were supporters. So they weren't actually lifting. The line out jumper had to jump and had to be off the air, off the ground. Sorry, in the air before the supporting players could li- could lift them or support them in the air and then they realized that everyone was just supporting each other from the ground so they were like let's just make just, them lifters yeah and for the listeners yeah. i don't the really good way of describing what how lifters are and what they should do is 
Dave is like a pane of glass, right? So mm-hmm. you think about two guys almost hand on hand through a pane of glass, mm-hmm. lifting in, in total motion. That's that's the the perfect lift is where everything's balanced. Everyone has almost identical hand positioning on the player, and Dave is this sort of prone figure mm-hmm. not moving around and that's what he did and continues to do so naturally not he move does around. not move his lower body his upper no. body will go but somehow from the hips down that's it, it stays um and you were the front lifter correct that's right yeah, yeah. i was right the front yeah <laughs> although although when we did the bit where i used to throw dave up i used to, we used to have a move where i did it from behind yep. so to speak lifting, I mean. <laughs> yes and um and that's when we he used to run to the front, didn't we? And he used to yep. pop you up. This poor this poor hooker was. I mean, he just lost his mind. He's just like, <laughs> I can't get over. I can't throw the ball over Dave. Yeah, it was brilliant, wasn't it? We yeah. nicked every line out. I think. Oh, we there's have, nothing better than nicking line outs. I love it. We have so Amen. many photos of you in line outs, and it's just you with that. I mean, there's like no one there even contesting it. It's just <laughs> yeah, exactly, Dave. And it was throughout. The your time has always been a fairly guaranteed um, aspect of your game, your being your team's game, that the lineouts are going to be strong. Yeah, and obviously the hooker throw. Yes, the, the, the hooker the, matters. The hooker. Um, but but interestingly, because it's a it's a it's a restart. It's a it's a set it's a set phase. You know, mm-hmm. if you if you can't win your lineout even on your own ball. It destroys the rest possession. of your game. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Set pieces and, and even are if it's, key. But scrum and lineout is vital. If you can't win those, it's very hard to win. It, you, the rest of the game, you're on the back foot, aren't you? And yeah. and and that's why you know, we we joke about how you know how you know the lineout and me throwing Dave up and everything. But particularly, it, it was one of the most deadly tools to stop the opposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially because when you're stealing it, not I mean, not only retaining your own exactly. position, but being able to steal possession from the other. Yeah, team. when you can kick the ball out of your half out of bounds and then have a you know one in two chance of nicking the ball at the line out uh, at the restart, it's, it's an amazing. Exactly. Yeah, it is. Um, so one thing we had, we talked about in our first episode is the difference. Um, in American rugby compared to other countries where rugby is a much more popular sport, which is that American rugby players for the most part do not start playing rugby until they're in college or after college. And this being um, a pretty significant difference compared to the rest of the world um, and why you get players like Dave being 44 and still playing a very high level of rugby. Um, and we talked about that, how you started at age seven, but that's, you know, that wasn't a unique thing for you to be starting at age seven. It's like no. kids across the country are starting at that age, did, did right? You know, they start at six now. Um, right. And it's, it's, it's obviously very different. You know, as I said before, it's very controlled. It's not, throw in the contact and let's get going. They get, they progressively, um, they progressively introduce different elements of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually in France, and this is the thing I love about the French, they start the kids at six as well, but they introduce no, no rules, no structure at all. Mm-hmm. They say, here's a ball. You've got to score it there. Mm-hmm. 
however you want to throw the ball, you do it. So they throw it forward, sideways, diagonally, doesn't mm-hmm. matter. They just get used to having the ball in their hands and having fun. And they mm-hmm. do that for a whole for a whole season. Mm-hmm. And, the, and you know, and you can see the difference in particularly English rugby versus French rugby. The French throw the ball around with much more verve than we do. We're much more structured and disciplined and it's all about you know, squeezing the game a bit more rather than playing f- fluent, fresh rugby. Hmm. When you came to Boston, you were 21, right? Yeah, yeah 22, I, was, I think, actually. I was 24-ish. Um, and yeah. I was, I'd been playing probably since I was 18. And you've been playing since you were six or seven. Yeah. Yeah. So I was still pretty, it was still new and fresh and I was keen. God, you were keen. Oh my god! Do you remember you used to pick me up every morning? So, Sashin, I'm not sure if we've just we've ever told you this, but I'm not. I'm a bit of a what they call a sappuccino on the uh, on game day. I I don't like to think about rugby. I get really miserable about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I've got your husband picking me up in his in his Chevy Blazer, going, "Hey, we're playing rugby today, man! It's a great day for rugby, isn't it?" And I'm like, "Shut up, Dave! I don't want to think about it." <laughs> so the enthusiasm was definitely something I know. I think because you guys come to it a bit later, there's there's definitely a much greater level of enthusiasm through your twenties, right? Than uh, we we see it as something you got to remember. I played, so I grew up playing rugby. I played rugby at school. Played rugby at club level at the weekends. Played rep rugby in the week as well. I was sometimes when I was in, in the academy in Northampton, I was playing or training five times a week. Mm-hmm. And it, and it, I, you know, I it's it, a lot. It's sort of. Yeah, you sort of lose a little bit of enthusiasm for it. It becomes mm-hmm. something you do rather than something you love, I think. Right. And that definitely was the opposite when I got to America. Everyone in Boston seemed to love it. Well, as you're on a professional track, it becomes a job. I mean, literally, if you're a professional, yeah. it's your job. And so if you're trying to become that, so right, you, you have to treat it as a job. So I could see that being, mm. yeah, definitely burning you out. So you notice a different level of enthusiasm from the players, from the American players in Boston to the players you're used to playing with. Oh, m- much different. Yeah, like a like a there was a level of there was a level of enjoyment and a level of your lives centered around like the rugby club. But when I was there, you know, I don't know what it's like now, but there was so much that was all done together. Mm-hmm. You'd go boozing together, play at the weekends. Like there were guys in the team, this is another thing that I couldn't get my head around, that were taking post-protectors, posts to the games and setting up the game before you'd play it. And yes. I had absolutely, remember, I had absolutely no interest in doing that. I was like, I'm here to play rugby. I'm not, I'm not a groundsman. Right. And that just wouldn't happen here. Like the level of enthusiasm, it, it was just, it was totally different. It was really nice to see. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about um what the club culture is like so you say like they come out of uni and they play at a club because i think that's maybe a bit different what that means but i maybe not but it's it's exactly the same in a sense of you leave uni you you let's say you move to london from wherever you were at university the first thing you do is you probably try and find a, a rugby club that you can start having a laugh with and look i think that what I'm about to say is that coming to America, the reason that you said, I wanted to go to America when I left uni, what's the best way of meeting 15 like-minded people, right? Mm-hmm. You join a rugby club. 
and you got friends for life. I mean, look at you two here, right? Mm-hmm. You know, 20 years on, he's still my best mate. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And it's sort of the similarly it happens. You either get brought up in a club where your whole community um, is still part of that rugby club environment. You go to university, you come back and play for that rugby club still. Or you move to a different city or town in in, in the UK and you go, right, I'll join a rugby club, make some mates, mm-hmm. enjoy myself. And within that community, you do definitely have people that go drinking at the rugby club all the time and, and socialise with them. Mm-hmm. I just thought, it just felt with me that in Boston, it was taken to another level of, of togetherness and enthusiasm mm-hmm. at that time. Well, was, and as you one, said, I mean, people were living together, especially then, like, so many yeah. I mean you had many different pockets of like here's three guys living together here's another four and this like it was definitely an all-consuming um venture and I think you know most people there were either like us Dave single and young mm-hmm. and then there were a few people who were probably in their late 20s early 30s who had wives but yeah, you know, kids weren't really on the scene and mm-hmm. it just felt like mm-hmm. a it was really. F- I I loved it. it. It was a. It was such a fun environment to be in. And um, so the clubs there, as you had mentioned, so there's actual clubhouse when you go yeah. right, and so and like that's a place you can go and hang out, even if like you don't have training. Yeah. It's more yeah, exactly. like here, maybe like an Elks Club or something, where it's actually a place that you can go and there's you can drink and you can get food and. Things like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I reckon and you have I people not- who are members of the club, not because they like rugby, but because they just want to hang out. Or they yeah, want to watch. You get a lot- They're their fans. Yeah, you, you get a lot of those sort of guys who think, oh, great, I'll just go to the local rugby club and have a pint. Never played mm-hmm. rugby in their life, but, mm-hmm. you know, enjoy it. You get those those older guys who have retired who still want to come down and watch the team play and have a few beers and talk to the talk to the guys in the club. Um, I mean, Digby and Otis's club, for example, is quite a small club, um, and they they have a clubhouse which is you know pretty decent. And people they have people have their weddings there, you know. It's like let's go have a wedding at the rugby club, sort of thing. So it is. Why so when I turned up, and, yeah, because well, we don't have, have one. I know, but we could have went to England. <laughs> and I I have to admit, I um. It was the it was the single biggest shock to the system when I said uh, I remember saying to um, who was the English scrum half Dave who who worked worked with you for a bit oh, Justin. Justin Justin Evans Evans mm-hmm. and I said to him I was like oh I need to go to the loo yeah where are the loos and I think we were playing on back or somewhere like that and he was literally gave me a, a, a sort of um, he gave me bog roll and said oh you just go and find somewhere in the woods. Yeah. I was like, this is insane. Like, uh, you know, where's the clubhouse? <laughs> right. where, where are the changing sheds? Right. This isn't civilized. And that, no. I mean, I'd say there's very few clubs in the U.S. that have that. Yeah. That's even, uh, yeah. even now is not a, and even you with your new facilities, Boston with its new facilities, just, you have bathrooms, but you don't have changing rooms and you don't have a clubhouse yes that's correct um that is correct that is correct that's correct well i must admit the the training facilities that i went to last time i was out there mm-hmm. in the bubble yes were unbelievable yeah. yes yes 
that's amazing. The bubble is amazing. Yeah. I mean, do you remember, I, I, it's, it's, I tell you the other thing, Sashin, about rugby is, so I haven't, I hadn't laced my boots up in what, five years longer. Mm-hmm. Last time I played rugby was at the 50th mm-hmm. uh, anniversary. And uh, we went, we obviously went and did touch in the bubble mm-hmm. and someone passed me a ball. I ran a brilliant line. Obviously you can't, you know, class is permanent sort of yes. thing, but I couldn't, I couldn't catch the ball. It was, I mean, it's like I'd never touched a rugby ball in my life. A great pass, great line. Ugh. You lost, you've it's lost amazing. all your lost skills. It. You're going to have to get them back. I mean, as Jigby and Otis get older, you're going to have to get them back. Yeah. I mean, I want, it's, yeah, it's, it'd be you know, nothing better than to play a game of rugby with my sons and daughter. So, oh, mate, we could roll back the years on that. I'd be prepared to come out of retirement for that game. Do you have, <laughs> yes, do you have, um, Hopes and dreams of what positions Jigby and Otis will play. So or you don't care? I, I've thought about no, I've thought about this at quite 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 long long level. Um, All forwards. So Digby is yeah, well, quite yeah, and and so Digby has has got my my body. Mm-hmm. So the poor poor lad. So he could be the most. He's more athletic than I was, but he could be the most amazing blindside flanker. I think, mm-hmm. but he's just he's just too nice. At the moment, so we'll see. He, he's more interested in in nature and that than, than he wants people. to go fishing. Uh, he just wants he to wants take to go fishing. fishing. <laughs> exactly. So We've all been you. there. Um, he starts contact next season, or so in September. So it'll be interesting mm-hmm. to see how he gets along with that. Um, Otis will probably be. Um, I can see him being a fly half. Um, he's got very. He's got Zoe's body. He's he's quite slight actually. But he he's not interested at all. No, well he's we'll still young. He's young. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's doing his first season, so it'll change. But I, I can see that my favorite thing. Be interested to see how. So Saxon, and you got obviously know your children better than I do. But yes, he seems like a very he could be a scrappy, busy little player. Yes, um, and Huck will have the height, but again, like yes. Digby, I'm not sure if he's totally into it, the physicality of it all. Yes, or... he. He is definitely worried about the physicality. I mean, he plays flag. He started playing flag football, and he did ask if there was flag rugby, um, but he had no interest when we were talking about football until he knew that it was flag, that it was not contact. Like he had no interest yeah. in that. I think Saxon will be fine with the contact, and I mean, he's got like the most incredible <laughs> flexibility and quads of steel. Like he, His he's probably going to be, is amazing. yeah, he could yeah, play. Anything, he, he's, really. he's like, he's going to be like a little ball, isn't he? Just mm-hmm. bounce off people. Yeah. They, mm-hmm. they think they've got him and they haven't got him. And they've both been doing, well, we haven't done it recently, which we have to get back into, but I mean, we did line outs with them oh, yeah. from, from the get go and You're they right. had it naturally. Right. The, the body it's in the pro genes. <laughs> I know what you're talking about in the kicking. Gene. Like, there's nothing worse lifting someone and getting getting kicked in the crotch by a a, a jumper who's. So I tell, you, I tell you, who so who's the guy who played at um down in Washington? Was it Glenn? Maybe no, Craig, Craig, Craig. Somebody you McKenzie? called him, Craig. Craig McKenzie. Nah, he was. Oh, no, Craig, Burns. Craig, Craig, Craig Burns. Burns. Craig Burns. That guy used to kick me every time, every time. 
to the point where you're 60 minutes into a game, I was sore from where he kicked me. He would always jump up, and he was a pretty good line-out merchant, but he would jump up and his feet would always kick forward, mm-hmm. always. So you'd have like stud marks on your on your thighs, or yeah. worse, he'd get you in the in the privates. I like to wrap, I like to trap the front lifters like right about <clears throat> underneath their armpits with my with my feet. And that helps stabilize me. And I kind of just, just just put my feet on either side of their torso and squeeze. And that helps stabilize me. And then also, when I get the ball, my feet let go. And it's a non-verbal cue that I have the ball and they can let me down. Wow. Man, that is amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, that makes that – makes per- you're a smart guy. I never yeah. really – that makes a lot of sense. It makes it a little bit more of a tendency to sit down, which you don't want to sit back on your back lifter. But it does, it does help stabilize your, your body and, and keep your feet secure. So you almost feel like you're you're more stable and stronger in the ability to fight for the ball if the other lifter if the other pod goes up as well, right? Yeah, because your feet are anchor. You're not, you know. You're not just yeah, you're, free. yeah, yeah. Have you done that right. always? I've done that for a long time. And yeah. did you come up with that yourself, or did Scotty teach you that? No, I think it just felt I I just saw my felt myself doing it um, just naturally. Point. Yeah, this this there's something. Without, without, you know, obviously praising Dave too much, there's something no. that's totally natural in the way that you operate a line out. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like some people, you see people play rugby and they're, they're naturally good at some elements of it. No mm-hmm. one's naturally good at being in a line out, right? That's not something that anyone's ever naturally good at except Dave. It's right. unbelievable. It's very fluid. He has a flow to it and it just, he makes it look like, oh yeah, that's how you do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy. It's yeah, it's, easy. yeah. It's he makes it look very easy. Yeah, it's funny yeah. that you guys say that because I do remember being the first time I was in a mall where I caught the I caught the line out and brought it down. And teams were in a mall, and there was so much pressure that the front row popped up, and my feet were off the ground. And for you know, yeah. and I'm getting pushed from the front and the back by 16 dudes, you know, 14 dudes, and my feet are off the ground. I have no control over where I'm going, and. uh I remember thinking that it was actually very exciting and felt extremely comfortable in that position. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that, that, most people would feel that like, takes a very yeah. special I think uh, it's mindset. Just, I think it's just a faith <laughs> yeah. in the teammates. Yeah. yeah, but you also, yeah, but then you have to have faith in the other team because if you're sandwiched in between, I'll be have faith in all rugby players. I would say that's that's a really interesting point. So there's some great stories about. So when you play in the front row, you've obviously got everyone gets very concerned about you know neck related injuries. Um, the front row is a, is a really dark place to be in some ways, and I, I enjoyed it a lot. But um, there seems to be, particularly in the forward pack, I would say, Dave, and I don't know what you think about this, but there seems to be because we're all putting ourselves in danger on some level, particularly in the forwards. There seems to be an unwritten rule between 99% of rugby players that if Dave was in a precarious position where he might actually have physical harm, mm-hmm. someone would stop it and say, look, you know, it's, it's not right. So I have never felt scared playing rugby in terms of physical harm because, you know, particularly in the front row, if, it, if, if your neck gets in a bad position, the other prop doesn't want to hospitalise you. Yes, he wants to beat you. And that he would stop the scrum or he would say, you know, everyone's got to stop. Yeah. And I think largely they would. That's funny because, um, um, oh my God, I 
just lost it. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's funny because um, you know I've been playing with the, rugby, the Boston Rugby Club for twenty years, and I've always said there have been very few assholes in the club. I mean, it's almost all yeah. people who you enjoy hanging out with, and who are people who aren't out there to hurt someone. So I could totally see that. I, I think, I think that's the difference. And everyone, you know, we were talking about it earlier, saying, you know, rugby's a game, what uh, thuggish game played by gentlemen. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that's right. You know, the the, the All Blacks talk about it, don't they? And forgive my language, Sashin, but they call it the no dickhead rule, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, I think rugby has an ability. Not exclusively, but an ability to sort of actually police that. That sort of happens. Mm-hmm. You know, you play with guys. You might not like them necessarily, but they're not bad people. Mm-hmm. Sorry, someone just kicked a rugby ball at my door. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I think an eight-year-old. Yes. Yeah, the, the eight-year-old. So, so Dave, Dave, rugby's done this, right? So my your husband is my best friend, right? And that's that's down to rugby. And we made this, as you know, we made this, but for the listeners, we made this pact one day when we were drunk that we were going to make sure that we saw each other at least once a year and that our kids would know each other. Mm-hmm. And 20 years on, we've been pretty successful at that. Mm-hmm. By the pandemic, mm-hmm. I reckon we've done pretty much every year. Mm-hmm. Either I come out or mm-hmm. you guys come this way. Sometimes and, uh, um, like six times our a kids year. Have yeah, it. you've done multi, <laughs> multi trips in a year. For sure. Yeah, I've done, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah, it's, yeah. it's amazing. And that's yeah, frankly, I mean, that's all down the rugby, right? Yeah, it was, I which was, is uh, amazing. In your amazing. wedding, you were, you were in yes. my wedding, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. You were the uh, hostess with the mostess at my wedding, yeah. master of ceremony. Yep, tried to keep the Brits um, at bay while we uh, partied. That's right, and I, uh, I was definitely at yours, working language barriers, but having a wicked time. <laughs> midnight, midnight blue suit, Dave. Yeah. We'll always yes. remember that one. <laughs> That's hey, and I'll tell you the other thing. And I was t- I was telling someone this the other day, and again, you know, we bring it back to rugby. When my mum was unwell, my best mate Dave phoned me up, and I said, "Mate, can you come out?" And he said, "I'll be there in two days," and he was there in two days. Mm-hmm. And um, you know that that is something that you can never ever imagine or forget. So. You know, and that's yes. all because we we met each other that time in the Kimvara after I smashed Randall at training. Well, it's more because your mom's an angel than the, well. Than I the mean, feeling, I, do, for you. I do feel like Dave is perhaps even bigger soulmates with your parents <laughs> than he is with you. I would agree. <laughs> yes. um, they, they definitely enjoy his company more than I do. Um, I think we all wish that I had been born in your stead. <laughs> they they definitely wish that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, that's why we have named this Love and Rugby, because there's the love for the sport, and then there's the love that comes with the sport. Speaking of love, um, we, of course, named our daughter after you. Yes. That's right. I I remember the call I got on that one. It would have been boy or girl was being named after you. Had never been a boy. We did. We didn't know her gender until she was born, and so had she been a boy, she would have been Nivet, and the girl version was Nivet. I remember I called you, and she was born, and I had texted you before because you aren't you aren't great about answering my calls. And I texted you and said, "Answer my call next time." And um, she was born. I introduced you to Nivet. 
And you said it. That's right. Said, what, it's amazing. What's that, what's that name? <laughs> <laughs> How do you spell that? I know. Um, and people definitely are like, um, why are you spelling it K-N? <laughs> like, oh, well, that, that's, very fair, that's something she'll get her whole life. Of course. Yeah. I get that even with mine. I tell you, on that front, you know, talking about love and rugby, my parents, you can't underestimate how blown out they were by that. That was for the even for them, as you're the favourite son, Dave. That was um, that was definitely. Um, I mean, we we're all just knocked out by that. Well, and when Dave suggested Somebody. it, I mean, we had no idea. So Niva is our third child. The first two names were much easier, and for her, we had no clue. I mean, we're the whole pregnancy, what are we going to name this kid? We had literally no options. Actually, at one point, Ellis was an option for William Webb Ellis. And then oh, one day, Dave comes in to the kitchen. I remember I'm staying at the counter, and he comes in and he says, how about Nivet? And I was like, yep, that's it. And Niva, if it's a girl. <laughs> Sold. Yeah, I mean, it was that. It was 10 seconds. I'm like, yep, Nivet. And if it's a girl, Niva. Done. And then unbelievable. The rest yeah. is history. Yeah. There. Um, yes, it is. All right. So finally, we need to ask you your first fifteen. So I've done British royal family in my lifetime. Okay. So I because I thought about I did think about having Henry the Eighth at tight head and that sort of thing, but it gets a bit silly. So I have I have to say I have thoroughly enjoyed doing this. So I I, um, I spent the whole afternoon at work thinking about it. I, and I emailed my parents going, what do you think of this? And um, e- even they thought it was good. So do you want me to, um, shall I read it just out? Just go yeah. for it, yeah. So let me just make sure I've got it here. So starting so starting at Loosehead, so number one, Camilla, Duchess of Cornwall. And the reason is that she's tough. She kept coming back and she never gave up. Love it. Um Hooker, um, Princess Anne, because she's very busy. She is the busiest royal, everyone says. Balanced and also looks hard as nails. Um, Tight head prop, I've gone with the Queen Mother. Uh, Now, she's obviously departed, but um, she was the cornerstone of the royal family. So I think she'd be the cornerstone of the team. And she also was pretty, like, brutal. So she'd have told it how it was. Um... In the second row, I've gone with Prince Charles and Prince William because they obviously know each other pretty well and they're both reasonably tall. Um, Six, not so creative, Peter Phillips, who's Prince Anne's son, because he actually played for Scotland under-20s and I played against him in 2000 and um, he took a real beating, actually. Uh, Open side, so number seven, Sarah Ferguson, former Duchess of York, um, because she's scrappy, chatty, really annoying. <laughs> she'd be at every, she'd be at every breakdown, and and broadly be a real nuisance, just like a good number seven. Um, number eight or eight man for the Americans listening. Uh, Prince Philip, dearly departed. He'd be my pack leader as well. Um, he'd drive the the forwards on. Uh, military strategy as a background. Really chatty, but with a bit of humour, so I reckon he'd be good with the ref as well. Mm-hmm. Um, scrum half, Kate, or Catherine, which I don't like as much, Duchess of Cambridge, smart player, very strategic, I imagine, um, and I reckon she'd find space if she had to run. 
Fly Half, the Queen, uh, also my captain. She's the boss, basically. Pulls all the strings, makes things happen, and everyone has total respect for her. Bit tricky in the backs, actually. So I've gone with Princess Margaret on the wing, who, um, for the British people who listen, um, was very light on her feet, um, which means she um, she had a lot of relationships, um, but also she was an absolute booze hound. So I've got her as my chief entertainment officer as well and in charge of the kangaroo court after games. Um, Centre pairing of Mike and Zara Tyndall. For obvious reasons, he's a World Cup winner. She's an Olympian, um, so I imagine that they would be pretty good. Also, Zara Tyndall's supposed to be quite good on the Smash after games as well, so I imagine she'd be good fun. And then Princess Diana on the other wing. Uh, My reasoning is, despite her being a bit flaky, she would moan if she wasn't invited uh, being part of the team. So so I think she has to be included. Um, Fullback... And this was a tricky one, actually, but I've gone with uh, Sophie the Countess of Wessex, who is married to Prince Edward, uh, because she's got great positioning Ooh. insofar as she has positioned herself, because of what's going on with the royal family of late, into a much more visible royal. So I think she's probably pretty good. Mm-hmm. And then two Brilliant. last two things. So that's, well, that's one to 15. The last two, I just wanted to say I haven't put uh, Prince Andrew or Prince Harry in because they weren't up for selection in my mind. Mm. They are no longer royals. No longer royals. And um, I love that. I love that. I love all of the reasoning. And so fitting. I said the only other um, one that would have worked for you would have been doing the British colonies which I think also would have been fun. So I, you know, it's funny you should say that. I was thinking about doing that. I, was, I really did. So, Where would um, America be in the British colony? Well, we're, no, we're no longer. I think it would have to Not be um, oh, current. So um, just to follow up, so you said you played with Peter Phillips, and then you mm. also played, or against, sorry, you played against Peter Phillips, and you also against, played yeah. against Prince William at uni also, didn't you? That's right. So that was that was in sevens. So we went up to where I was at university was about. So he was in university in southern Scotland, near Edinburgh, mm-hmm. and we went up and played a um, sevens tournament. And yeah, he was in the opposition. He wasn't very good. And if well, it, so it was seven. So that's different to to say positions yeah, and but, everything. But, but Peter Phillips, yeah, yeah, but Peter Phillips, he was at Exeter University, and he was very good actually. To be fair, and he when I say he got a hard time. I played in a university team full of pretty tough guys, mm-hmm. and when they all found out we were playing against Prince Anne's son, he, that he was they a really target. Gave him a lot of yeah, yeah, yeah. He got a real kicking, and he, he was good about it as well. So fair That's play brilliant. to him. I love it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming thank on. You. It's been um, it's been enlightening awesome. and always so nice and just every time we talk reminds us how much we miss you and can't wait until guys. we well, can I'll see, see you again I'll see you in the summer. yes we'll definitely come out in the summer the whole lot of us um but also i've enjoyed it because i've it's nice to see your face mm-hmm. and so and when telling stories you weren't aware of because i thought you knew everything. i know <laughs> well right. amazingly all you know this is our third episode the first two episodes i've learned so much that I never knew 
stories from him, <laughs> which I thought I knew everything too. So always good to put me in my not. place. It is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, our love, our love to everybody. Enjoy midterm. Yeah, like, I do. Love you. Love Thank you. you. Love you guys. Rugby Club is always looking for new players and fans. So whether you're new to rugby and looking for a place to start or a seasoned player looking for a new club, check them out at www.brfc.org or find them on Facebook and Instagram. Love and Rugby is hosted, edited, produced, and conceived by Sashin Dampier and Dave Prell. Our theme song is written and produced by Sean Dampier. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. This has been Love and Rugby. Love and Rugby.